Well, before we continue our study in the book of Luke with Luke chapter 3, let me just update you real quick on our Gen 12 pledges uh, to fund that missionary retreat in Prague along with some other projects here on campus and uh, other forms of missionary support. Uh, so far, we have pledged a total of $70,518 for 2024's Gen 12. And then the neighbor-to-neighbor portion of that pledge is where we don't, you don't give any money to North Wake. You reserve those monies in your own home and bank account for those who are in need that you may come across during the year. Uh, totals to 16000 Now, these are some encouraging numbers, but there's also some room for growth here. Let me explain. Uh, of that 70000 ish dollars, that's comprised of about 35 families who have bound together to do that. And that's a really encouraging number for 35 families to have pledged $70,000. I think we have more than 35 families here. Um, So if you still wanna get on board with Gen 12, there's still plenty of room for you to get on board. Um, If you'd like to to join us in Gen 12 in any way this year by giving big or giving small, or perhaps you're at a place where you just can't give financially to to this, but you would like to join us in prayer, you can still mark that on your pledges that you don't intend to give, but you will plan to uphold these, um, these needs through your prayers. We would love and appreciate that too. So I believe you did get some cards in your, uh, in your bulletins. There will be more in the lobby if you need a card that you want to fill out to join. You can also do that online through the link that was on the screen, northwake.com slash gen12. So that's that. Uh, now, uh, our text for today, Luke chapter 3, we're going to be doing verses 21 uh, to 38, the end of the chapter. We're going to cover the baptism and the genealogy of Jesus. And both of these sections will tell us quite a bit about who Jesus is, and also it will have some profound implications for who you are, for our own identities as well. Let me take these stories in reverse order, and I actually want to start with the genealogy. Now, I thought about how to best present this section to you, if you're there and you can see in your Bibles, verses 23 to 38. We often have members of the congregation read the scripture passage to us before the sermon, but I just couldn't figure out who I publicly wanted to torture with this passage. Uh, No, but honestly, I was probably more worried that they would never agree to read scripture aloud again if we asked them to, so I thought perhaps the best way to present this section is for us to watch a clip from the LUMO project, uh, which just uses the words of scripture to narrate the gospels in video form. So hopefully this will work and you can watch this. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nechai, the son of Mart, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Yohanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Yorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Yonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, 
the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Roy, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Alphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So, genealogies, these long lists of names, usually fathers, but not always or exclusively in the Bible, are often the bane of Bible readers. You know, you get to these parts in your Bible reading plan, and it's like, skip! Uh, you know, we tend to think of these as boring or rather unnecessary parts of Scripture. But maybe there's another way to look at them, uh, even through a modern lens. For example, did you know that genealogical research today, like looking into your own genealogical history, is apparently the second most popular hobby in the United States, after gardening. Uh, and it's the second most visited category of websites uh, after, sadly, porn pornography. Genealogical research is a multi-billion dollar industry, especially with the rise of DNA testing, uh, enabling people to learn more about their biological origins and perhaps even discover some family surprises. Um, the Mormon church has become a record-keeping machine uh, compelled by a certain set of beliefs to compile and store untold amounts of genealogical information in the nuclear strike-proof Granite Mountains record vault outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. And they've made these records uh, highly accessible online. But why has this become such a modern-day craze to find our genealogical origins? Uh, journalist Libby Copeland writes in her book, The Lost Family, about the explosion of genetic testing and why it's taken off. She says that we look to our past to try to understand our present. She says we're natural storytellers and we want to know how our origins factor into our life story. We want to know why we have this or that particular trait, you know, why we walk around with our hands folded behind our back, or why we have dimples in our cheeks when we smile or why we can or can't carry a tune. We go to genealogies to tell us about ourselves. So genealogies can be fascinating if it's the right ones. What about Jesus' genealogy? What does it tell us about him? Why does Luke go through all the trouble of researching the names and writing them all down? Plus, why even feel the need to include a genealogy of Jesus if he's really the son of God anyway? Born of a virgin. A few reasons, I think. I'll give you four. First, it shows Jesus' humanity. It shows his humanity. Yes, he was the son of God, but we also believe he was fully man. In other words, Jesus had a family. He had birthdays. He experienced family life in, with all of its ups and downs. You know, did Jesus have a brother or a sister with special needs? Did 
any of his siblings or his cousins die young, the likelihood would be high for this day and age. Did he have a grandfather who drank too much? Did he have an aunt with a terrible temper? Did he have a grandmother who always baked his favorite treat? Did he have an uncle that no one ever talked about? And was Jesus' father even, even still alive when he began his ministry? We actually don't hear anything from Joseph from here on out in the story. Why is that? Most commentators tend to think that he passed away during Jesus' adolescence or his young adult years. So Jesus knows the ups and downs of, of family life. And Joseph is perhaps overlooked sometimes in the story and we think, well, Joseph wasn't Jesus' real dad anyway, but what does it mean to be someone's real dad? Anyone who's adopted will tell you that there's more to it than just the genes. Uh, Russell Moore points this out uh, in his book on Christian adoption, that the gospel writers sure seem to think that being an adopted dad counts as a real dad because they all draw Jesus' lineage back to David and Abraham through Joseph. Moore makes his point emphatically. He says, if Joseph is not really the father of Jesus, you and I are going to hell. Jesus' identity as the Christ, after all, is tied to his identity as the descendant of David, the legitimate heir to David's throne. So as an adopted son, Jesus is still Joseph's real son. For the gospel writers, it counts. Joseph is a real dad to Jesus. And just to pause here for a moment of application, I think this greatly dignifies the work of adoption in the church. If you're a family that has adopted children, you've undertaken a uniquely challenging task, but a sacred one, and one that's much needed in the world today. Related to this, uh, today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, uh, where churches across the U.S., remember the countless lives lost to abortion, affirm the dignity and worth of all human lives, and we pray for an end to abortion. And we, we pray for the women in our country who feel overwhelmed at the prospect of an unplanned pregnancy. We pray that they would find hope and help for their daily needs. And we pray that the church would be a place that's willing to help meet those needs. And one of the ways that we can do that is by fostering a culture that supports adoption. Rosaria Butterfield writes, if churches were known as solid support systems for believing families who adopted all kinds of children with all kinds of problems and issues, if our churches were places where unwanted children became sons and daughters, where both unwanted babies and the desperate women who carry them were claimed by us, then I'm certain the mouths of lions would be supernaturally shut. Adoption matters. So Jesus' genealogy, it shows us his humanity by his adoption into Joseph's family. But also I think Luke wants this genealogy to, to, to show us Jesus' historicity, his humanity and his historicity. In other words, Luke has done some research to tie Jesus to real people in real places and with real names at real times, most of the people on this list were not famous, great figures. They were just dudes with names. And as somewhat of an aside, uh, 
if you're a careful reader of the New Testament, you'll notice that both Matthew and Luke give us a genealogy of Jesus, but they're different in some places, especially in the generations after David. And various explanations have been proposed for these differences between Matthew and Luke, from complex leveret marriages to adoptions to Greek names versus Hebrew names to maybe one gospel gives Mary's line and the other gospel gives Joseph's line. But all of those explanations have some challenges. Uh, but when you run across stuff like, stuff like this in the Bible that seems to be contradictory or just hard to reconcile, there's a couple of key points that help me. A couple of key points that help me here. First, I tend to assume that Luke, or whoever's writing, is not an idiot. Luke seems to be an impressive writer and researcher, and he was likely aware already of Matthew's genealogy. So why he traces the genealogy differently, I'm not sure, but I don't think he was an idiot. That's thing one. Thing two is I tend to assume that we just don't have all the info. Matthew and Luke both give selective, not exhaustive genealogies. So there's just a bunch that's gonna get left out and we have to be content to not have every morsel of historical information that we might like to have. So that's enough on that for now. But besides his history and his humanity, Luke's genealogy also gives us Jesus' pedigree. He does connect Jesus to David, to Abraham, uh, that's verse 31 is David, verse 34 is Abraham, and to Adam in verse 38. And I think he's making a case that Jesus is the right person in the storyline to save God's people. He's got the right pedigree. And this is true in so many of the great stories. You know, it's the son of James and Lily Potter who will defeat Voldemort. You know, it's Aragorn who's in the kingly line who will restore Gondor. Luke is making the case that Jesus is the right guy he fits the bill to be the Messiah. He fits the story, his pedigree. And then the fourth thing, I think Luke also hints at Jesus' inclusivity here. And by inclusivity, I simply mean that he's the one and only savior for all peoples, for all nations, not just Israel. This is another key difference between Luke and Matthew's genealogy. Matthew starts with Abraham and goes down from there. Luke goes past Abraham all the way back to Adam. And in doing so, Luke invites a comparison between Adam and Jesus, where Jesus will be to us a new Adam, a leader of a new people. Like Adam, the first Adam, in a special sense was the son of God because he was the first human created, Jesus, in another sense, is the true eternal Son of God. Now, to be fair, Luke is much more implicit than explicit in his comparison, but his missionary companion, Paul, will draw this out more directly in places like 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. He says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, or Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. 
So he draws the comparison out further between Jesus and Adam. And this is why Charles Wesley included that fourth verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing that's just a little too theologically complex for the radio waves these days. But it goes like this, Adam's likeness now efface. It's a prayer, Adam's likeness in me, the things that are broken and sinful. Erase that, God, and stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. What's the point? Jesus, as the second Adam, is the savior and head of a new group of humanity made up of people from Jewish and and Gentile nations. Perhaps this is especially important to Luke as the only Gentile author of the New Testament. And this is why we send our church family members, like the ones we commissioned today, and the ones we commissioned last week, to other places across the globe, because Jesus is the one and only Savior for all peoples in all places. The love of God is too great to be contained to one place or one nation or one people. And so Luke's genealogy of Jesus reflects that by going all the way back to Adam. So, that's all I've got for the genealogy. I hope it's the best sermon you hear this year on Luke's genealogy. Uh, Probably will be the only one. Uh, But now let's shift back up to verses 21 and 22. Uh, This is Jesus' baptism. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So it seems here that a whole crop of people responded to John the Baptist's call to repent of their sin and prepare for the arrival of the Messiah. We talked about this last week. And the symbol of their repentance was baptism being immersed in the water. And as all this is going on, Jesus chooses to be baptized also, which of course kind of makes you wonder if this is a baptism for repentance, why does he need to be baptized? Does he need to repent? But Luke spends zero time answering your quandary, uh, perhaps because Matthew's gospel already dealt with it. In this interchange between John and Jesus, Matthew records John saying, whoa, 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 you can't get baptized. I need you to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, let's go ahead with it because it's fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness, which is an interesting statement, but Luke is more interested in what happens right after the baptism than Jesus' baptism itself. He says that as Jesus is praying, and he'll present Jesus as a man of prayer over and over again throughout his gospel, you'll see a couple of pretty wild things happen. The first, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, which is like, what? Okay, that's random. And scholars scratch their heads at this, uh, trying to figure out what the significance of the dove symbolism is. One guess, my favorite guess, is that it could be a call back to the Spirit of God that hovered or fluttered over the waters in the creation account of Genesis chapter one. But that's really just a guess. Uh, But I think the main point here is that the Holy Spirit rests upon or resides upon this man, Jesus, as a sign of God's empowerment and his approval. 
And then sec- the second thing that happens is a voice comes from heaven, God the Father's voice, and he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, what does this mean for Jesus? And what, if anything, does it mean for us? Well, for Jesus, there's, there's a lot of Old Testament imagery and language woven together in this single line. You're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. It's bursting at the seams with Old Testament allusions. It implies that Jesus is the true king of Psalm 2, where the psalmist writes, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It implies he's the true servant of God from Isaiah 42, where Isaiah writes, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And it implies that Jesus is the true sacrifice of Genesis 22 from the story of Abraham and Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, your beloved son. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him. There is a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So the heavenly voice may actually tell us quite a bit about Jesus. He's the true king, the true servant, the true sacrifice that all the Old Testament stories pointed us to. But also notice here when the voice comes to Jesus in the course of the story. Notice when the Father speaks. It's before Jesus does almost anything in his ministry. It's before he's tested in the wilderness. It's before he teaches anyone or heals anyone. It's before he calls his disciples. It's before he gives his life on the cross. Notice that his identity is declared and settled at the beginning, before any of that happens, not at the end as a reward. Pastor Trevor Hudson suggests that these words laid the foundation and set the pace for all of Jesus' life and ministry. The only two times we hear the voice of God speak in the Gospels is here at the baptism and at Jesus' transfiguration. And both times, the voice says just about the same thing. This is my son who I love. I'm so proud of him. Hudson writes, Because of his inward assurance that he is the beloved of God, Jesus is consistently his own person, able to pour himself out in extravagant self-giving and is finally free to lay down his life in complete self-surrender upon the cross. Secure in his interactive relationship with Abba Father, he resists the wilderness temptations to forge an identity based on illusions of success, popularity, or power. Not once throughout his life does he need to prove himself, win the approval of contemporaries, or be involved in any manipulative power games. Knowing who he is, Jesus invests himself single-mindedly in the realization of his Father's kingdom vision for our broken world. Now, what does this have to do with you and me? 
I think a lot. I would wager that more than anything, we all long to hear words of blessing like that over us. You're my beloved. I'm so pleased with you. Those words have power. If you've ever had a father speak those words over you or say something like it. If you've ever had a father withhold those kinds of words or worse, you know it shapes you. Trevor Hudson suggests that we'll look anywhere, even the wrong places, to find that voice, to settle our sense of self and our sense of worth, our identity. Some of us listen to our own voice to find those words. We look inward and really try to find ourselves and define ourselves, you know, by our personalities or our gifts what we're good at, what we do well, or even maybe what we're bad at, like our addictions. I mean, so besides genealogical research these days, personality tests are all the rage. Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, the Big Five, all the way to online quizzes like which Disney princess are you or what pasta dish are you the most like? (laughs) And I should add, full disclosure, nothing against personality quizzes is a fun way to explore your unique makeup. We're doing some personality tests as a church staff right now and it's all good fun. But the proliferation of all these tests just makes you wonder, how desperate are we to wanna understand ourselves, to define ourselves and feel like we belong? But isn't that, I mean, obviously there's more to you than four letters or one number. It can be so hard to find ourselves and find that voice of blessing in here. Besides, our own voices are just so fickle. And then some of us mostly listen to the voice of what others say or what others might think about us to provide that sense of self-worth and blessing. Again, Trevor Hudson says that when this happens, Our lives degenerate into a series of desperate attempts to please, perform, and be popular. And we live out a secondhand, desperate existence and in the the end, forfeit our very identity. Not to mention when we always just listen to the voice of others for that sense of blessing, we become so fragile. You know, elated when others think well of us and then reduced to shambles when they don't. Maybe this voice for you comes in the form of achievement in your work, in your career, or even as a mom or a dad, even in a ministry position, or even in ministry success, or whatever. Uh, I read a really insightful ESPN interview with MMA fighter Ronda Rousey uh, after she lost a much-anticipated fight with Holly Holm. Uh, Sports Illustrated named Ronda the world's most dominant athlete. She was the first U.S. woman to win an Olympic medal in judo, the youngest woman to ever qualify for the Olympics. In the season prior to her loss with Holly Holm, Ronda was undefeated, and only one fighter made it past the first round with her. And uh, I admire her for her transparency in the interview, because she shares how after that one loss, she was completely devastated. She cut off contact with her family and her friends for weeks. And she admitted to being suicidal. She said, I just kind of slept a lot and ate fast food 
sitting up a bit on the couch here and there to see what my dog was doing. First, I was so sick, I couldn't eat anything. Then I just slept out in the woods for a while. Physically, my body was refusing its own failures. It was like sick of itself, expelling itself. Like all the skin came off my face. My whole body flushed it out. Now, that might sound extreme to you, but let's be fair to Rhonda. Winning UFC fights might not be your thing, (laughs) but I imagine there is something that if you lost it, or if it was threatened, would absolutely eviscerate you. Because so much of your identity is wrapped up in it. You can barely handle having that thing poked at, or it utterly devastates you. Why? Because your whole sense of self, your whole sense of worth is wrapped up in it. That's where you go for that voice of blessing. In 2008, there was an Olympic diver named David Badaya who was also depressed. Uh, He smoked weed almost every day, according to his own admission, and after placing fifth in the 2008 Olympics, was contemplating suicide as well. He said he had become so focused on his sport that when it wasn't going well, he was an absolute wreck. But somewhere along the way, he met a Christian coach who showed him that there's a better place to find his sense of self and his sense of worth, who showed him what it meant to have a Christian a Christian identity. That's an identity that is not earned or achieved, but is received as a gift, not a reward. So after competing in the 2016 Rio Olympics, uh, he and his diving partner and fellow Christian, Steele Johnson, they gave an incredible interview on the air uh, after winning a silver medal. So if we have this queued up, why don't you listen to what these guys say? Oh, do we have audio for it too? Hey, there we go. David and Steele, congratulations. David, you came to Rio with a gold and bronze from London and a whole lot of pressure. What does it mean to come out and medal here in the Synchro event? Yeah, I, I just think the past week, there's just been an enormous amount of pressure and I've felt it and, um, you know, it's just an identity crisis. When my mind is on this and thinking I'm defined by this, then my mind goes crazy. But we do have to know that our identity is in Christ and we're just, we're thankful for this opportunity to be able to dive in front of Brazil in front of the United States and uh, it's been an absolutely thrilling moment for us. You now have gold, silver, and bronze Olympic medals. How much does this free you up for the individual event? It does. It takes a lot of pressure off of me, but um, this this never could have happened without Steele, without him pushing me, without him loving me well, uh, encouraging me, and my wife has just been a solid rock, and uh, I, I couldn't have done it without them. Well, and Steele, for you, your first ever Olympics, first ever Olympic event, how were you able to maintain your composure so well? I think the way David just described it was flawless. The the fact that I was going into this event knowing that my identity is rooted in Christ and not what the result of this competition is just gave me peace, it gave me ease, and it let me enjoy the contest. If something went great, I was happy. If something didn't go great, I could still find joy because I'm at the Olympics competing with the best person, the best mentor, the, just one of the best people to be around. Um, so God's given us a cool opportunity, and I'm glad I could have come away with an Olympic silver medal in my first ever event. All right, congratulations to you both. Thank, Thank you very much. Did you hear what they said? And they said the same thing in another interview, more or less. 
Steele said, this is not what my identity will be for the rest of my life. Yeah, I'm Steele Johnson the Olympian, but at the same time, I'm here to love and serve Christ. My identity is rooted in Christ, not in the flips that we're doing. David Badiah again added, when my mind is set on what we're doing on the platform, it just goes crazy. But when I remember my identity and value is in Christ, it sets everything else at ease. And I can perform without worry and without fear. Those guys dialed in to a different voice. Which voice are you listening to in your life? And could it be true that these words of love and delight, you are my beloved and I'm proud of you, could be spoken over you by God himself? You might say, how could God say that to me? (laughs) That I'm his beloved child, that he's proud of me, that he delights in me? There's no good reason why he should say that to me. But this is why Jesus came. Let me spell it out for you, John 1, 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Romans 8, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the uniform, repeated testimony of the New Testament scriptures. Now just think, how much of yours and my foolish and sinful behavior is often wrapped up in trying to find someone or something to tell us that we are beloved, that we are wanted, that we're pleasing. How desperate are we to find that voice somewhere, anywhere? But Jesus shows us that there's another voice, a better voice that does not have to to be desperately courted or fretfully maintained. It's the voice of a perfect father who will freely accept us through his beloved son so that we might be his beloved too. Jesus says he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. 
And I think part of that means that he was baptized to foreshadow a greater baptism where on the cross he would plunge beneath the waters of our sin and our death and our judgment, hearing no voice from heaven but only silence, screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he bore our sin? And he did it so that you and I could now hear the voice of the Father that says, you too are my beloved. I'm pleased with you, I'm proud of you, I love you. So whose voice are you listening to these days? What voice must you hear to feel steady, settled, secure? Jesus' baptism shows us that the only voice that really matters and really lasts and is freely given is the voice of the Father. Perhaps today, um, perhaps today as a way of receiving for the first time or anew, the love and pleasure of God upon you. I'm gonna read a brief collage of scripture verses that expresses God's heart towards his children as we pray together. And if you, by faith, are willing to agree with God about your need for him and will accept by faith today his great love towards you, perhaps even as we pray, you could just open your hands uh, where you sit to accept by faith the love of God for you as you listen to these scriptures as a symbol of receiving his voice today as the most important voice in your life. So let's pray, and if, if you choose to, you can open your hands as a symbol of receiving God's voice as your most important voice. And you might even hear your name spoken as these scriptures are read. The Father says to his children, do you see what kind of love I have lavished on you? That you would be called my child. And so you are. You too are my beloved child. I am well pleased with you. I love you even as I have loved my own son. You did not love me at first. But oh, how I loved you and did not spare my own son, but freely gave him up for you. How will I not also with him give you all things? I have remembered your sins no longer. They are as far as the east from the west. You are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. So Father, we receive your love today offered to us freely in Christ. So by your spirit, would you help us see it and believe it such that we would even sense it in the deepest parts of who we are. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen.